I've never been a big fan of cover songs. I simply have more respect and appreciation for musicians and bands who create their own compositions as opposed to those who copy songs that they didn't conceive and give life to themselves. When it comes to music, I'm not interested in hearing an imitation or a rendition of the real thing, especially if it's not as good as what was first released. I guess that makes me somewhat of a traditionalist, as I would say that the older, earliest, or original is often better. Yet there are times when the version of a particular song that we've heard for the first time is the cover and not the original. So when we go back and discover the old version, it's familiar but we might like the newer one better because the cover for us is the one that we know the best. All this to say, as long as people write new music and make covers of old songs, listeners will be divided with respect to which version is better. Whatever you or I think about cover songs, though a few things are plain regarding why they will forever be with us. They are played by musicians and liked by audiences, because the songs themselves are meaningful and speak to people personally. Covers renew or recontextualize something that may be dated but which remains deeply relevant. They also help to preserve or recover something good that may otherwise become forgotten. What's more, people frequently play covers because it's a sign of homage, respect, or admiration to their favorite songwriters, and it helps newer musicians to learn what makes a good track, giving them a pattern to work from when writing music of their own. So as much as I don't love cover songs on albums, on the radio, at concerts, etc., sometimes they are indeed better than what was first Recorded. The thing to remember is that they wouldn't even exist without the original. In a similar way, what has been said about songs could be said about the covenants God made with the community of faith. However, if you play or re record a song that is your own, it's in point of fact not a cover. Accordingly, whereas musicians who play another person's a musician who plays another person's song isn't its creator. What the letter of Hebrews has been pointing out so far is that the God of the Hebrew Bible is one and the same with God in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, when considering the various covenants in both the Older and Newer Testament, what was taking place across time and space was the repeated renewing of this same covenant that God divinely initiated. And what I hope we'll see this morning is that the supposedly brand new covenant that's being described for us in Hebrews is much more of a remake than it was a cover. Because if the covenant we presently have with God as a faith community is in effect the older covenant renewed in Christ, then when we speak of a covenant made with Jesus as being greater or better, this must mean something different than what we all too often assume. 
namely that when compared to the new, the old was somehow flawed or bad, which I would contend to be a grave misunderstanding. If we were to track the progression of the Lord's partnership with the people of Israel from the time of Abraham forward, there was only ever really one covenant. God was looking for a people to call his own, a people who God would be able to bless by making a dwelling amongst them, individuals living in a vibrant, thriving community because of their genuine love for one another and for God, a spiritual family living life as it was originally intended. When the Lord revealed himself to Abraham, the covenant was this, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It was a promise to make the nation of Israel truly unique, a pledge to Abraham and his descendants that they would be provided for and in turn would be able to provide blessing. To others. This agreement was originally struck with Abraham, but we read throughout the rest of the scripture that this covenant was subsequently reconfirmed with his family, with Isaac, with Jacob, and eventually with the entire community of Israel in the time of Moses. Some may view the Mosaic covenant itself as something brand new. After all, it's a lot more specific than the general and succinct promise of blessing that was given to Abraham. However, another way to see it is as a new rendition of the already active covenant. The ten words or commandments and the detailed laws governing how people should conduct themselves was simply a comprehensive way to describe and regulate life within the covenant community. In other words, if the Abrahamic covenant was the original song, The covenant that God made with Moses and the people of Israel was an epic re-recording of the same song. The promise that God made to Abraham was therefore made anew with his descendants, who themselves never met their spiritual forefather. The same could be said about the covenant that God made with King David and with those living during the time of the monarchy. As for the passage that comes just before our text, What we have there is a description of yet another example of a renewal of God's covenant. Specifically, the author of Hebrews makes reference to a passage from the prophet Jeremiah, which we didn't hear in the scripture reading this morning, but which I will read now. Jeremiah is remembered to have said, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. In fact, this section of Hebrews 8 is word for word what we find in Jeremiah 31. However, before we consider the notion of one covenant being termed greater or better, a word that occurs more in Hebrews than the rest of the New Testament put together. It's important to point out that the limitation or fault with the first covenants was not related to God or to the original agreements that were struck 
After all, the older order of things that we find in the Hebrew Bible, the law, the sacrificial system, etc., was presented as and understood to be God-ordained. The problem was and remains connected to the waywardness of us humans who are reliably responsible for the breaking of the agreed-upon covenant ourselves, which is unmistakably clear in chapter 8, verse 8 of Hebrews, where it says that God found fault with the people. To say the same thing differently, the issue at hand was always and continues to be God's people habitually forgetting that a life lived in God's name requires one to love God and others without hesitation, without reservation, and without condition. The problem, of course, is that humanity is so resolutely self-interested. And no matter how good or very good a situation might be at the start, people unfailingly find themselves in a captivity of their own making, meaning that any circumstance of potential blessing or fruitfulness, once disturbed, needs to be renewed or restored again. As we know from Scripture, this, in essence, is the history of Israel, which was set on repeat across generations. A covenant was made. The covenant was broken. The covenant renewed. For a considerable amount of time, this recurrent restoration of covenantal faithfulness was done via the sacrificial system, through priests making offerings of animals at the temple. But if the temple were to be destroyed and no sacrifices could be offered, the greater question would be whether the broken covenant would be able to be made new again. This is what the prophet Jeremiah was speaking to as the temple was demolished during the Babylonian exile, resulting in an unanticipated inability to present offerings of bulls and goats as was previously required. But did this mean that the people were no longer able to be forgiven? Did it mean that the Lord would no longer dwell with them as he used to? Or could it be that it was a moment in their history for something brand new to take place? For the same covenant to be renewed and reconfirmed in an unexpected way. What God's people in Jeremiah's time needed was someone to remind them that the Lord was indeed still with them and that they could still rightly be related to the Lord in this new situation that they faced. And it's this page from the history of Israel that's in view when the author of Hebrews speaks about Jesus because it was within this other unique set of circumstances that God chose to bring newness to the old covenant once again. For the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed and rebuilt was marked for demolition again. But this time, from the first century onward, it would remain a ruin indefinitely. Again, it wasn't that the temple and old way of doing things in Israel was bad. 
It had at one time been sanctioned and sufficient or the real thing. But what happened when God became an incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth and took over the priesthood from sinful mortal priests to quote a U2 song, this fresh renewal of the covenant was even better than the real thing. In his book, Hebrews for Everyone, N.T. Wright puts it this way, the old temple was good, the new one was better. The old priests were good, the new priest was better. The old covenant was good, the new one was better. What they had was true, but it wasn't the whole truth. What they knew at the moment was important, but the most important thing to know was that God was planning to do something more. And the whole letter of Hebrews was written in order to say the something more, the whole truth, the better thing had now arrived in Jesus. So whatever you do, don't go back to the old things. However good and true they were, they are now taken up in the new and better Otherwise, you will look like someone trying to pump water from the river back into the various small streams from which it came. It can't be done. You must go where the river is taking you, even though it's traveling into countryside you hadn't expected. In other words, when using the term that's often translated from Greek to English as better, what's not being argued is that the older things were wrong or somehow faulty. The God of the Older Testament is the same God of the Newer Testament. Otherwise, the Bible that we read would contain only 27 books. But as it stands, those three quarters of text that many Christians frequently overlook are unmistakably part of Scripture as well. That being said, it's useful to say again, What used to be was what God had chosen to work through. It's just that the covenant as renewed in Jesus Christ was understood by the early church to be more advantageous, more useful, and more excellent than what was operative beforehand. With this in mind, this is why the author of Hebrews is confident of better things that in Christ a better hope through which we approach God was made known, and that Jesus, who should, should be seen as one who became the guarantee of a better covenant. Moreover, it says in Hebrews 8, 6, that Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry, and, that, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. And from our text In chapter 9, verse 11, it comparably reads, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Speaking of his own sacrificial work and his own body as some sort of new temple, the older was good. Because God was the maker and constant remaker of the covenant. But the new is spoken of as better. Because where we and people of all time failed, God would succeed to perfectly embody or live out what covenant keeping should look like. Thereby giving us a profoundly practical example to follow.
In one sense, keeping a covenant is like having a contract. Both you and I know what it is to have a contract with a person or an organization. It's a formal, written, or verbal agreement that you make that's binding. You enter into a contract any time you start a new job or hire someone to do some kind of work or when you get a new mobile phone or when you sign a rental agreement or sign a check or sign up and sign into a particular website. Pretty much any document or screen that you put your signature on could be considered some kind of contract since you are putting your name representing yourself on and promising to be answerable to the terms and conditions that relatively few of us take the time to read through. No one ultimately wants to be held accountable if certain requirements are disregarded, either because of ignorance or outright defiance. But if you are responsible for breaching the contract, either by not doing what you said you would do, or by doing what you said you wouldn't do, the resultant consequences are yours to deal with. If you don't pay a bill on time, you will be charged interest because the contract you first made with the credit card company was that you would pay your bill on time. If you don't pay your rent, you will eventually be evicted because the rental agreement you originally signed clearly stated what was expected with respect to payment. If you contravene any terms and conditions in any type of contract, unless you are shown grace or given a second chance, you will receive a final notice or your account will be deleted or worse. We understand what human-made contracts are all about. And though a covenant with the Lord is different from other contracts in the world, somehow we've lost the force that a covenant is still a contract with its own terms and conditions that God has set. It's just that no one throughout all of history was able to uphold the law perfectly. As we first hear in Psalm 14 and see repeated in Romans 3, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. No one, that is, until Jesus Christ, who remains the first and only one to flawlessly keep the covenant as a representative for all of humanity. In this way, through Jesus, the covenant that was good became better than it ever was before, since God as human kept the covenant for us, thereby becoming the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, as it says in Hebrews 5. It should also be pointed out that the things termed better in Hebrews cannot be improved upon any further. Better here indicates completion or perfection. Better means the very best. In Jesus, it is finished. And yet the fulfillment of Christ's work once for all doesn't release us from the responsibility of trying to remain faithful to God in our own lives. Because this renewed covenant is still a covenant. It's a partnership that calls each and every last one of us into action. And if we want to benefit from the promises the Lord has made, this involves deliberate participation in the life of the community that is called by God's name. 
Though many conventionally speak of a personal relationship with Jesus, it's important for us to always remember that the primary focus of covenants was communal throughout all of Scripture. The covenant always had a people in mind, not just a person. Granted, we wouldn't have a community without individuals, but the purpose of covenantal promises and blessings was not solely for our personal satisfaction or benefit. The covenant includes us, but it's much bigger than us. Along these lines, wasn't God's original pledge to Abraham about having numerous descendants and that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed? And then there's the Mosaic Covenant, which is clearly not exclusively about Moses. It was a detailed set of instructions describing what life should look like when lived together as a community of faith. As for David, wasn't the renewal of the covenant in his day primarily related to his offspring, a pledge to make his lineage endure for his kingdom to be established and to persist? And what about the new covenant in Jeremiah? Was it not first made with the nation of Israel, a reminder to them during exile that God was ever with them as a people while they were away without land and without temple? Yes, it's about living life together. It's about being the community that God dreams that we would be. It's about recognizing that a covenant with the Lord remains the way of rightly living related to God and to one another. It's a formal agreement that God has kept perfectly, but which we must nonetheless continue striving to keep and to live out ourselves. It's an alliance of loyalty to God that we must both make personally and communally, which is why in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 25 to, 24 to 25, that it goes on to say, let us consider how we may spur one another onward toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another daily. So what does spiritual life in community look like? What makes a gathering such as this that's united by a mutual covenant with God different from a group of people who just happen to share similar interests? A great number of things could be pointed out here. However, since our theme today is a greater covenant, and given that this new covenant mentioned in Jeremiah is distinctly highlighted by the author of Hebrews, let's hear those words again from Jeremiah 31. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Similar to what Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, the first thing that a life together is about is this, 
It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and puts his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. In other words, we don't create community. We can't. We are a community by virtue of what God has done in our lives. Our task is to do our very best individually and as a community to lend visibility to what already exists. If we are followers of Jesus, we are covenant people who belong to the Lord, whose lives should be marked and defined by who God is. And secondly, after we accept that we are in this together, whether we like it or not, and that it's better not to be alone, it's possible for us to truly appreciate what covenant communities are supposed to be vitally defined by mercy and forgiveness. We all make mistakes, don't we? We all break the, ter- the terms and conditions of the covenant. We all breach the contract that we have committed to keep. But what makes a community of faith in Christ different from any other group is the grace that we've been freely given, which we are then able to and expected to freely give to one another. What we have come to experience in knowing God for ourselves, we then agree to reveal and express through all of our words and our actions. This is definitely not easy. It demands commitment and perseverance. But if saying yes or entering into a covenant with God through Jesus is better than any other promises or hope that we have in this life, wouldn't you say that it's a worthwhile pursuit? So pursue peace with everyone. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And just as it was written to the Colossian church long ago, I now encourage you, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you. You must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. Amen.